You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on my book, Sustainable Frontiers, Unlocking Change Through Business, Leadership and Innovation. Connecting Earth and Sky. The Birth and Rebirth of Creation. I want to finish this season by returning to the big picture. Because sustainability is not just about business, leadership and innovation, and it is certainly not just about surviving the future, it is also about living in a world of abundance and diversity, in a way that brings joy and inspiration. Jean M. Russell calls this thriveability. When I think about the bigger picture of sustainable frontiers, there are three ideas or questions which come to mind. The first is the story of creation. How did the earth and sky come to exist in the first place, and how do they fit into the grander scheme of things? Second, there are social and environmental issues surrounding our earth and sky. What impact are we having on our planet and society, for better or for worse? Third, how does nature influence and inspire us? What are the deeper connections which exist between the living creation which surrounds us and of which we are a part, and our spiritual experience of life? Let me begin this ending, therefore, by looking at our relationship as human beings with life. In one African creation myth, as told by Credo Mutua, Zulu Sangoma, or Hila and Sanusi, or Keeper of the Legends, the first great nation of human beings were born from the awkward embrace between the Great Mother and the Tree of Life. Following their birth, the strangest change came over the Tree of Life. Green buds burst forth from his writhing limbs, and clouds of seeds emerged and fell upon the rocky plains. Soon all manner of plants and mighty forests grew forth, a creeping carpet of lush living green. From the tree of life's roots came reptiles crawling and slithering, and insects humming and whining upwards in continuous streams. From his branches dropped snarling, howling animal fruit, which fell to the ground with a thump and scampered off into the forests in their millions. From great cracks in the trunk of the tree, birds of all kinds came flying and waddling forth, filling the air with all their love calls. The earth, which had hitherto been lifeless and dead, began to live, and sounds of all kinds resounded from the forests and valleys, as beast fought beast, beast called beast, and birds sang with their happiness loudly towards the smiling sun. The song of life had begun on earth, the song which is still being sung. Yes, indeed, the song of life continues even to this day. But over the past hundred years or so, there has been an increasing dissonance in that song, as our human society has caused serious injustices and degradation to the environment. This deals with my second question, namely, how we impact on the earth and sky. We have become like the legendary monkeys who, according to one African story, were placed by the great earth mother goddess on a sacred fig tree to guard it. They developed such appetites that they not only ate all the figs, but also devoured the bark and the wood of the tree. When the great earth mother returned, she found the tree reduced to a rotting stump 
and the skeletons of all the monkeys who had died of starvation after eating their own tree. So this is the bad news which we ignore at our peril. Deforestation, climate change, poverty, desertification, inequality, resource depletion, religious intolerance, the collapse of fishing stocks, bribery and corruption, water wars, forced migration and pollution-related disease. These are all critical issues which threaten life as we know it and the very survival of our species and many others. If you think this sounds overly dramatic, well, ignorance is bliss. I could shock you with countless frightening statistics, but instead I would like to cite a short quote taken from Time magazine about a day in the life of a child of the future, assuming we do not change our behavior. The young boy awoke on a hot, oppressive morning. It wasn't a school day, so he could afford to lie back for a while with his favorite storybook. That was the one with the drawings of the great forests, the woodlands filled with tall trees, wild animals and clear running streams. The scenes seemed so magical that the boy could hardly believe in them, though his parents assured him that such wonders once existed. Closing his book, he saw no joy in the day ahead. He wished the air conditioner weren't broken. He wished there was more food in the refrigerator. He wished he could see the great forests. But there was no use in thinking about that now. It was enough of a struggle just to be alive, especially for a child. Even today, this is not as far-fetched as it may seem. But this is a future we want to avoid, so what are the positive signs, the stories of hope? Allow me to share the testimony of four people. They are Edgar Mitchell, James Lovelock, Victor Frankel and George Washington Carver. And this is why. Edgar Mitchell, as some of you will know, was one of the world's first astronauts to orbit the Earth and walk on the Moon. The power of his achievement to change our way of thinking not only lay in his physical journey into space, as incredible as that a feat was, rather it was the images of our beautiful, fragile, blue-green planet Earth from space, which those first astronauts beamed back to us and captured in countless breathtaking photographs that brought new consciousness to humanity. For the first time, we became aware of the Earth as a single, unified, living whole, rather than a politically divided patchwork of countries and societies fighting over resources and money. Edgar Mitchell's account of the effect of these images on him are truly moving. He describes the experience as one equivalent to enlightenment or revelation, a shift in his being which touched him on a deeply spiritual level. I think this powerful image of the living, unified earth is our first true cause for hope. It is a symbol of both a current physical reality and a future social and spiritual reality to aspire towards. Then there is James Lovelock, an astronomical scientist who applied science to back up our intuitive understanding of the Earth as a living whole. Lovelock had, since 1965, been working for NASA on a model to determine whether life could exist on Mars or not. In order to do this, he had to ask the question, what are the conditions that sustain life on Earth? 
but in the course of this investigation an unexpected conclusion was reached, namely that the Earth, previously accepted by science to be an inert physical object, appears to demonstrate the capacity to self-regulate innumerable conditions, for example gas concentrations, climate, bacteria growth and so on, in order to create a suitable environment for life to flourish. And yet this is the very same characteristic which defines living organisms. His rationale, backed by a rigorous scientific model, was launched to the world in the 1970s as the Gaia Hypothesis, named after the Greek goddess of the Earth. Essentially, the scientific community now had to face up to the challenging fact that the Earth system as a whole may be a living, self-regulating, self-sustaining organism. And yet this is exactly the understanding implied for thousands of years through the mythological images of indigenous cultures, such as the Tree of Life and the Mother Earth Goddess. Let me move now to my third question, namely how we are influenced or inspired by nature. And this is where my third source of hope comes in, Viktor Frankl. I have already mentioned that Frankl was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps and the creator of the psychiatric technique known as logotherapy, which deals with the way in which people find meaning or purpose in their lives. Frankl, in his book Man's Search for Meaning, gives me great hope about the innate quality in humans to appreciate and be inspired by nature, even in the direst of circumstances, such as those in which he found himself during the Second World War. Here is a quote from his book to illustrate my point. As the inner life of the prisoner tended to become more intense, he also experienced the beauty of art and nature as never before. Under their influence, he sometimes even forgot his own frightful circumstances. If someone had seen our faces on the train journey from Auschwitz to a Bavarian camp, as we beheld the mountains of Salzburg with their summits glowing in the sunset, through the little barred windows of the prison carriage, they would never have believed that those were the faces of men who had given up hope of all life and liberty." Despite that factor, or maybe because of it, we were carried away by nature's beauty, which we had missed for so long. In camp two, a man might draw the attention of a comrade working next to him, to a nice view of the setting sun shining through the tall trees of the Bavarian woods, the same woods in which we had built an enormous hidden munitions plant. One evening, when we were already resting on the floor of our hut, Dead tired, soup bowls in hand, a fellow prisoner rushed in and asked us to run out to the assembly grounds and see the wonderful sunset. Standing outside, we saw sinister clouds glowing in the west and the whole sky alive with clouds of ever-changing shapes and colours, from steel blue to blood red. The desolate grey mud huts provided a sharp contrast, while the puddles on the muddy ground reflected the glowing sky. Then, after minutes of moving silence, one prisoner said to another, How beautiful the world could be! Frankel also gives us a clue to why we may be in the collective state of abusing our planet, much in the same way as they were abused as prisoners in the concentration camps. He talks about how, on their day of release from the camp, they all went walking in the meadow close by, and it was filled with flowers. 
but to their surprise they felt almost incapable of appreciating its beauty. They had become numb to beauty and experiencing pleasure. Could this not be the same mental state in which our city-bound, rat-race-stressed population of today finds themselves? Many people have become so isolated and detached from nature that they feel numb, incapable of sensing its beauty and wonder, and insensitive to any damage they may be causing it. A final clue comes from the last, perhaps least known person I mentioned earlier, namely George Washington Carver, an American slave descendant who became known as the Black Leonardo. Were it not for his achievements, Carver would probably have been written off by history as one of those crazy, uneducated, superstitious, but harmless mumbo-jumbo types. Why? Because he talked to, listened to, sang to, and healed plants. But the world could not ignore him, for Carver was an agricultural chemist with a master's degree who discovered the commercial benefits of the peanut, used only for hog food at the time around the Civil War, as well as the sweet potato. In his long career, which stretched into his 80s, Carver invented hundreds of new products, including cosmetics, axle grease, printer's ink, petroleum substitutes, shampoos, creosote, vinegar and wood stains, to mention but a few. All from nature's bounty, and all because he took the time to listen to nature's wisdom. When asked about his prolific knowledge and inventions, he had this to say, Nature is the greatest teacher, and I learn from her best when others are asleep. In the still dark hours before sunrise, God tells me of the plans I am to fulfill. The secrets are in the plants. To elicit them, you have to love them enough. Everyone can, if only they believe it. And indeed, perhaps the world is beginning to learn from Carver. For most of the world's newest and fastest developing technologies do nothing more than attempt to mimic the ingenuity of nature, from artificial intelligence and biotechnologies to solar energy and phototronics. But what about each of us in our daily lives? Are we listening? I believe that for creation to be healed, each of us needs to be that connection between earth and sky. We each need to find our own sense of meaning and inspiration from nature, whether by growing things, walking in the mountains and forests, actively campaigning for environmental issues, consciously buying fair trade and environmentally friendly products, or allowing ourselves to relate more intimately with the people and creatures which share our planet. There is a useful little way to maintain a focus on this process of listening and learning from nature, most ancient indigenous cultures have a strong tradition of animal, plant or landscape totems. We should not treat these as superstitious nonsense, for we create our own meaning and most meaning can be found in symbols. Ask yourself, which of nature's creations most inspires, teaches or challenges you? Adopt a particular animal or tree or river or mountain or sea and learn as much as you can from it before looking for a new totem. In my own life, I stumbled across the fairly unlikely influence and wonder of geese after a close encounter with two birds that flew past me when I was at Zoo Lake in Johannesburg many years ago. 
And to illustrate how meaning can emerge from a totemic relationship with another creature, this is what I learned about geese. The goose was the sacred bird in Rome's Temple of Juno and was associated with Boreas, the north wind in Greek mythology. It is also the totem for the winter solstice in the Native American medicine wheel. The goose is symbolic of writing and storytelling, with its quill having been used as a pen for many generations. In more practical terms, by flying together in V formation, geese, geese get where they are going almost twice as quickly with half the effort. When the lead goose gets tired, it simply drops to the back of the formation and another takes the lead. Those near the back continually honk encouragement to the ones up front, and when one of the geese is injured or becomes ill and drops out of the formation, two other geese always drop out and stay with it until it recovers. The spirit of the goose has continued to inspire me. In fact, I've written a book on leadership in which Gulliver, a Scottish goose, gets lost on his way to leadership school in London and ends up travelling down through Africa, learning unusual lessons in leadership. The book is called Follow Me, I'm Lost, The Tale of an Unexpected Leader. So what is your messenger from nature? Are you ready to listen? Carver summed up the essence of this vital ability. He said, When I touch that flower, I am touching infinity. It existed long before there were human beings on earth and will continue to exist for millions of years to come. Through the flower, I talk to the infinite, which is only a silent force. This is not a physical contact. It is not an earthquake, wind or fire. It is the invisible world. It is that still small voice that calls up the fairies. Many people know this instinctively. So, perhaps if we listen to our hearts and our souls, if we tune in to the earth spirit, we can help to ensure that the child of the future, quoted in Time magazine, faces this far happier prospect. The young girl awoke on a cool, inviting morning. It wasn't a school day, so she could look forward to doing what she liked best. Her family was going just outside the city, into the great forest, where they would stroll under the tall trees, spot wild animals, and wade in the clear-running streams. Every time they went, she felt lucky. After all, her parents had told her stories about the old days, before people learned to protect the land and water and harness the power of wind and sunlight. It was a dark time when the forests died, rivers ran dry, and millions went hungry. The girl was amazed and frightened that such a thing could ever have happened. But there was no need to think about that now, not with a glorious day ahead. It was so good to be alive, especially for a child.' 